In our series, we've been in over the last several weeks, we have, it's been an amazing journey, honestly, and my favorite portions so far of the teaching portion of the Why Jesus series has been personal testimonies, and today I cannot wait for you to hear and for me to hear the testimony and sharing from Nico Pooks. So Nico, come on up and share your... All right, good evening, Spark. Uh, my name is Nico. I'm a recent Stanford grad and a proud Spark member about 18 months. Um, now, before I get started, I need to uh, issue an apology because I'm going to go overtime. Uh, I told Pastor Kevin that I would be editing down my testimony yesterday, and then I didn't. I'm sorry, Pastor Kevin, I lied. Um, I, don't, I forgot what the punishment was for going overtime, but I'm sure it's worse if you also lied to your pastor about it, so pray for me. Um, I often find that my story is principally composed of the stories of the people who have given me some piece of themselves to make me who I am. So I'd like to begin with the story of my family and their faith, um, which starts uh, with my Korean great-grandmother. Faith has been passed down a matriarchal line in my family, and it began with her who first found Christ and then spread it to her siblings and to her children. Um, So that faith was passed on to my grandmother, who kept uh, the family together as they immigrated to the U.S., and then down to my mother, who I've always known as an ardent follower of Christ. Um, yeah. My mother uh, took on the tradition, and so she, when she met my uh, father as a grad student in Chicago, uh, she pulled a classic flirt-to-convert move, which was so successful that they got married, started a fam- uh, moved to France, and started a family. So it's in this context that my own journey with Jesus started. Uh, Through my mom, I was brought up singing songs about how Jesus loved me and how all the little kids of the world were his children. But um, as something that we can all relate to, I think, is that there comes a point when our understanding of God or whatever principle you believe governs the world is broken. And for me, this came with a diagnosis. Uh, When I was six, I was diagnosed with leukemia, a blood cancer. And over the course of the next seven years, as I fought the disease— Uh, The progression of increasingly painful medications and worsening odds really challenged how I saw Jesus. I think kids of that age are pretty obsessed with fairness. And as I struggled with the pain of my treatments, of seeing my muscles atrophy to the point where I could no longer walk, and of feeling left behind by my peers and my friends and my siblings, my vision of this nice, happy, love-the-children God was broken. I think childhood cancer is a particularly insidious foe because there's ultimately no one or nothing to blame. The best current scientific consensus is that this type of cancer happens purely by accident. And so, unlike with other cancers, I couldn't even blame smoking or bad health habits, um, but purely random luck. And so when I was crying through the pain of the chemo that was injected directly into my muscles or into my spine, There's just nothing for me to direct my anger towards except this random, uncaring world. And it seemed like the God that I was told about, who was supposed to love for and care all the children, was suddenly silent and apathetic. And so I sank sank deep into depression. And if I'm honest, many days I wish that my life would be over. But I also find that our God finds ways to meet us in the midst of our struggles. Part of that for me was discovering that the Bible was full of people who felt as abandoned as I did. I don't know if you've met any other 10-year-old whose favorite book was the book of Job. (laughs) But when I read that book, I saw the story of a man who loses everything, suffers greatly, 
And yet his story has enough value in God's eyes to be preserved within our text. See, our God is not just the God of the strong, of the wise, and of the healthy, but core to God's identity is how God sees, meets, and loves us amidst our brokenness and suffering. And though this idea is all over the Bible, I think the passage that sums it up best for me is the following. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes a certain thorn in his side that was preventing him from carrying out his ministry effectively. I think some people believe that this, uh, he suffered from particularly severe epileptic seizures. And so Paul describes his experience with God amidst his suffering the following way. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it, the thorn, away from me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I see two promises in this. The first, God is not absent. God sees my suffering, and despite the silence, God's grace and power are always present. And the second, my suffering is not random or hopeless, because God promises to redeem and work through my weakness. Now, with the gift of hindsight, I have so many examples of how God has redeemed this awful suffering in my life for my betterment. Uh, But for the sake of clarity and time, uh, I would like to tell you one story about how God met me through my cancer. So in 2010, my family moved um, from Paris to Palo Alto. And a few months after getting here, I got a second relapse. And I thought I was being abandoned to suffer at the hands of even harsher treatments with worse odds away from my support network in France. What I did not know was that God was preparing, me, was preparing to bring someone into my life that would forever change my direction. See, through, the time, through my time at Stanford Hospital, I met an MD-PhD student called Jonathan. Jonathan visited me once a week in the hospital as part of an elective medical school class. Jonathan, who had turned out attended the same church as our family, stayed connected to me beyond his one-year class commitment. And so when I finished my treatments and I looked for ways that God could redeem the experiences I had had, Jonathan volunteered to take me on and mentor me in his lab. Now, anyone who's worked in the lab before knows the burdens and the risks of taking on a trainee, especially a bumbling, clueless high school student. But with grace, Jonathan didn't just show me the ropes in lab and teach me how to, how to pipette, but taught me that I could use my skills to prove something valuable and made sure that I had a path toward success and was faithfully present beyond any, what anyone could have expected of him. And it is thanks to him that I got into Stanford and that I found through medical research a way that I could use my own experience as a cancer patient to do good works in God's name. So I am now applying to MD-PhD programs, entering through the doors that God has opened before me in the hopes of being able to walk alongside with and be a compassionate presence to other cancer patients. See, no story that I could ever have written for myself would be as amazing as the, God, the one that God wrote for me. And only through this deep suffering and weakness could I be capable of receiving the undeserved grace and radical love that God poured into me through Jonathan and through so many other people. God's immense power is on display in the crazy ways that these people went out of their ways to love me. So to close, I'd like to share some pictures to illustrate the journey that God took me on and the people that God brought alongside of me throughout it. Now, this first picture should help you believe in miracles. Um, This is uh, me during my treatments. 
there's a particular medication that made my face balloon out and I become particularly hairy, which I thought was the per perfect excuse to prank my family members by changing the lock screens of their phones to this image. Um, or the miracle could be uh, my physical recovery, but also that my sense of humor has evolved greatly <laughs> since then. Um, right. This is a picture of uh, Paul and Carolyn Warnkin, complete strangers to our family, who heard about me through a prayer email chain and who have been um, my pen pals and prayer warriors for over 10 years. And so now whenever I go to the D.C. or Baltimore area, I have the joy of being able to visit them and extend some of my gratitude toward them. Um, this is a picture of my cousin Julianne, who interrupted her life on two occasions to come live with my family and friends and help us throughout this process. Um, this is a picture of me and my lab mates, including Jonathan in the red Stanford shirt. Um, and this is a picture of my family, including my aunt and uncle, uh, my uncle who is here in the audience, um, who would regularly come to France to support my family uh, during these treatments coming from Palo Alto. Or from and so, and from standing up here, I also have a picture in front of me of so many of the people who have blessed me in my time at Stanford. God is go so good. So Spark... This is my answer to the question, why Jesus? Because in my suffering, God's grace is sufficient for me, and God's power is made perfect in my weakness. So I will boast all the more for my suffering, for my shortcomings, and my smallness. For when I am weak, then my God is strong. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm so good. <laughs> I think all of us in this room have probably loved somebody where we've had to ask those questions, right? Or it's gone it's either for ourselves or somebody we've deeply loved. And this is uh, very powerful. Thank you. Okay. Pull it together, Pastor Daniel. <laughs> Somebody told me one time that I'm their pastor because I cry with them, so I'm just putting that on display for everybody right now. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we bless you for being with us in, um, in good times and in bad, in times of, of joy and in times of suffering. We bless you, Father, that you continue to include these stories of, um, of triumph and weakness within our text and within our community, this living text that walks amongst us, Jesus, that you continue to build more of your hope in each one of us as we walk through these paths of suffering here. God, thank you so much for Nico and for his life and for the way he'll continue to shine a light so bright for you. Thank you for the way in which his words continue to change and minister to each one of us as we think and meditate on them in the coming week. And as we turn our hearts towards your word, let us um, be changed by it and be moved by, by your goodness and your welcome that's available to each one of us. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Okay, I've told, I, does anyone have a tissue? Because it's just going to keep going for a while. <laughs> Look at all these good people. Look at digging and 
Oh, thank you. No, that's not. That's food. <laughs> have my glasses off. I can't see a thing. <laughs> All right. Thank you. A pack, a whole pack. Hopefully that won't be necessary, but you never know. I think that was not fair. Pastor Kevin, did you orchestrate Nico to be right before? Um, my best friend died of cancer 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And so just really so good to hear your story. Okay. We are going to focus in on our why Jesus. And for me, when we were thinking through why Jesus and why we would continue to pursue and follow Christ in the midst of, of all of the options that are given us these days, and you guys could be any number of places on a Sunday, um, for me, this passage that we're going to look at tonight is a keystone for me. It's like this will be the reason, honestly, I can never, ever, ever let go of Christ because of, of what I see taught in, in this passage by Jesus. So our message tonight is entitled, All Are Welcome. That all are welcome here in Christ. And I think I see in Jesus, and particularly through this story, um, just this radical welcome and love that Jesus puts on display through one of the most brilliant parables that we could ever encounter. Now, in rabbinic literature, we have about 4,000 parables. So this is not unusual to see a rabbi teaching with a parable. And, and a parable is often talked about like a you know, heavenly message with earthly good or earthly message with heavenly good. And then we also talk about a parable as um, being sort of the handles that are on a basket so that you can pick up and carry God's truth with you where you go. And this particular parable that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 15, is often referred to as the gospel within the gospel. It is what we've called the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. And typically within Christian circles, we often preach these as three different stories Jesus tells. But in fact, it's one story altogether. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons, actually. And so this is what I would like to instead refer to this as the parable of lost things. And as we look at this parable in its entirety, Jesus is going to provide for us an increasing value and increasing tension in each level of this single parable of lost things. Things will move from least valuable sheep to slightly more valuable coin to the most valuable sons. And as that progression moves them through the parable, we also find that the seeker shifts too. So in each section of this one parable, we find that there is a shepherd and then a woman and then a father that's doing the seeking, that's doing the hard work of finding the lost thing. And the lost sheep then and coin and sons progress as well. Now I want you to note for just a moment that in all of these moments and connections in the single parable that Jesus's brilliance has the actor always being the seeker. And we're going to take a look at that. So just hold on to that for a moment. Okay. Let's look at this passage then in Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to read it through. And we're going to stop a few times along the way to point out a few um, notes that I really want you to pay attention to as we go through this passage together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Let's stop. 
Isn't that good news? Right? So tax collectors, sinners, everyone gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners. And here's the kicker, and eats with them. It's not just the same as sitting there and having this relationship where you're just going to go, okay, let me try to, um, you know, and counsel you, have you change your ways. The eating with them is a deep challenge because having table fellowship in the ancient Middle Eastern Near East, even still today, is a very intimate experience. And it isn't something that happens between like greater and lesser people. It's something that happens amongst equals as they sit around a table and share with one another. Note too then that it's not only tax collectors and sinners that are gathering around Jesus, but it's also Pharisees and teachers of the law. That everyone is attracted in that moment and they're all gathering around, but there's a problem, right? The Pharisees and the Torah teachers, and by the way, just so you know, Pharisee is not a bad word. It's become one. But if we were to land Jesus in any particular religious sect of his day, it would be Pharisee. Because the Pharisees believed right along the same lines as Jesus and vice versa. Believed in the full inspiration of the entire Hebrew scriptures, not just the first five books of Moses. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels and demons. Jesus' theology fits right in with the same theology of the Pharisees. Okay? So try to, at least we're going to make, make that word change in our heads. So Jesus sees this conflict for them, and he says, once upon a time, right? Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's pause for one moment in the middle of the story. He's telling us, again, a single parable. Let's listen for a minute. A person with 100 sheep had great wealth. So this is a wealthy person. And God is the shepherd and the people are lost sheep. Over and over and over again throughout our entire Bible, that's going to be a regular theme. When I say to you, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me through paths of righteousness, right? All of that, you immediately can think of Psalm 23. It's very commonly read at funerals. We like that a lot there. But it would also come to the mind for any first century Jew hearing Jesus start to set up the story. There's a man, he's a shepherd, he has great wealth, and one sheep is lost of the hundred. Okay, And they would all start to go, oh, he's going to talk about God. Because God is regularly cast in the role of shepherd within our story. Also, by the way, all of the great heroes of our faith are often shepherds. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, more, right? People that could actually take care of a flock. Note that a sheep will not find its way home. They are not homing pigeons. They don't know how to come back. They're not the brightest animals ever. They typically just follow the sheep butt directly in front of them. So there's a story, um, and I can show you the photo in Turkey, where one sheep went off the cliff and hundreds and a huge flock just followed behind until after, after some time they were still jumping off but just landing on the pile of sheep that had come up to match the edge of the cliff. 
And people lost a ton of money, and not to mention the loss of animal life, right? The sheep will follow just the next one. So this sheep is not going to be able to be, be found. It's not going to try to think, well, maybe if I hang out here, my owner will be able, my shepherd will be able to come and find me. Once lost, a sheep will crawl under a rock or a bush, and it will begin to bleat. It must be rescued quickly before a wild animal hears it, finds it, kills it, and eats it. So this sheep can do nothing to find its way home. It can make some noise, but that's not just attracting the shepherd. It's going to attract wild animals that hear its vulnerability in the midst. Okay? So as Jesus continues to tell this story, um, Kenneth Bailey is going to say it this way. You wonder why I receive sinners and eat with them? Jesus' answer in this first part is this. I do so because in my person, God is fulfilling his great promise hinted at in David's shepherd psalm and spelled out clearly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Through those prophets, God pledged to come in person and round up lost sheep. God also pledged himself to rescue the flock from the shepherds who destroy them. And this is who I am. And this is why I do what I do. I have come to seek and save the lost. You are the shepherds of Israel and you've lost your sheep. You should go after them, but you have failed to do so. To compensate for your mistakes, I'm going after them and you should rejoice with me. That is essentially the subtext of this first part of the parable. And if you will read ever, just for fun, Ezekiel chapter 34 and on, where Jesus does later on in the encounter with Zacchaeus say to to seek and save the lost, you'll hear what Jesus is actually saying, which is that the shepherds of Israel have not done their job. And God says, so I myself will be their shepherd. I myself will come down and shepherd them. And I myself will come and seek and save the lost. And they all would have had that whole passage memorized. Very familiar. So the moment Jesus sets up this parable with, there once was a shepherd. Everyone's like, okay. We know what's talking about here. This is the beginning of the answer to look how he sits. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continues his story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, homes are about the size of a one-car garage total. They contained little furniture. A house is dark, even during the day. They don't have a lot of windows, small little venestration locations, just ventilation slits high on the wall. And the coin's in the house, and it can be found. So the good woman lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches diligently, Jesus says, until she finds her coin. The coin, note, does not flip itself out of a crack between the flagstones of the rough floor and land on the table. The woman must find it. The coin can do nothing. So even if you didn't believe me earlier, like, well, I bet that sheep could find itself home. Jesus is continuing in his parable of saying, all of the work is being done on the part of that person seeking. And note, too, that as Jesus is telling the story, and as he is continuing to cast it, wouldn't we all suggest that indeed the seeker is being cast in the image of God? God is shepherd, and so just... Note that I'm not trying to convince you of this. I'm just letting you know Jesus, whom you claim to follow, just said that God is like a woman. So, all right. So why does Jesus make the primary character in the second part of the story a woman? It could have just been easily just as been a man. And there's a similar story in rabbinic literature of a man searching. Because women were as important to Jesus as men. 
Indeed, the entire New Testament restores women to a place of equality with men, including men and women together. And Jesus builds on the Hebrew scriptures and builds into the equality of men and women. So if a shepherd is God, then so is the woman. Each story has a finder. The church has always understood Jesus or God as the shepherd and as the father, but they've rarely understood Jesus and God as the woman. Not this church, other churches in your row. All right, let's continue in our story. So Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. That's just such an insult right away. You should know. I mean, it's basically going to your parents saying, could you hurry up and die? Because I want my share now. And there is no such thing as a share, by the way. So the father would have had to sell something, right? Because you don't have just like bank accounts. You have property. You have livestock. And in doing so immediately would have disrupted the life of the village. So this son's ask is not just, I want my share. In a community like this, there is no such thing as a share. But goes and asks audaciously for this. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Remember that Jesus is a first-century, Torah-observant, kosher-keeping Jew. So he's deliberately setting this stage in light of that first-century Jewish context, right? Nobody should be hanging out with pigs. Now, he continues the story. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. Again, the action of the seeker, right? To bring this one home. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, God has rehearsed speech together. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That unqualified rejection of the son towards the father is instead met with an unqualified acceptance. That radical welcome is sort of unheard of in the ancient Near Eastern context and in our world today, isn't it? We have books drawn up just like, here's your boundary you should set with your rebellious child, right? Like, and like, we want people to be punished. We want them to know what they did and, and really understand it. And none of that is the case here. In fact, just for fun, you should have the homework assignment of going and figuring out who the young son is quoting when he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Just go find that out and have fun with that. Continues the story. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out seeking again. The father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, and catch the words, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. Nobody said prostitutes. You don't have to get all nasty. Squandered your prostitutes. You kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours, not my son, you're my son too, this brother of yours, don't get it twisted, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's where it ends. You see, for many, grace is not just amazing. It's unbelievable. And as Jesus casts the father in this circumstance of finding these two lost sons and trying to bring them in, remember again what the setup of the entire story is. Tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law, all sitting together at a meal. The complaint is, who is this that welcomes sinners and forgives them and eats with them? Who could do such a thing? And Jesus says, once upon a time. (laughs) And at the end, he leaves it there. We don't know if that older son comes inside. It's left with Jesus, who's cast himself as the finder. As God the shepherd, as God the woman, as God the father. Saying essentially to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the Torah and anybody else would have a problem with this radical welcome. Do you want to come inside and join the party? This is a choose your own adventure parable. (laughs) Anyone ever have those books growing up? Right? Like, okay, you're here. Page 57, you go in and join the party. Turn to page 102. You have a great time. It's amazing. God's kingdom's big and beautiful. Page 57, no, I'm not going to go into that party. My brother's a loser. Okay, so then you leave the party and that's the end of your story. Jesus leaves it there on purpose. Dr. Ken Bailey, who lived much of his life in the Middle East and is an amazing theologian and just passed away a few years ago, has written some phenomenal books, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Paul Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and The Jacob and the Prodigal. And in the Jacob and Prodigal book, page 169, he says this, that anthropologists know what everybody knows is not explained in the story. One learns what everybody knows by living in a particular community, learning its language, and participating in its life. So there are things that Jesus expects the readers and hearers to know that they would have known right away that we don't know because we're far away from that time period, aren't we? You see, in Middle Eastern hospitality and table fellowship, there's an intimacy that's present. You sit down and you share that meal with one another. Still to this day, when I go to Israel, it's not enough to go only and sit at a Starbucks and hang out. No, you don't have Starbucks. um, Aroma. And hang out and have a coffee with my Israeli friends that live there. I'm going to need to go to their home. 
If they know I'm in the country, I'm going to go to the home. In fact, I have such a dear friend. She used to meet me and my groups at the airport with cut fruit in order to welcome us to the country. Still today, she won't be able to do that for the next group. She lives in India now. Uh, But as then Jesus is telling the story and everyone's thinking about the intimacy of this table fellowship, we have to note a few things then. Each of these parables ends with a party which means food and people are involved, eating and drinking together. The culture demands it. So we're sharing this space. The word for havarim, like friends, can mean just friends, but it can also refer to a collective group of people like a group of disciples who are all together working together towards a common good, right? So in definition of rabbinic communities, people have employed in secular trades, but their spare time is spent debating the law and trying to apply it in their world. And Jesus is eating with that group, with the havarim, but he's also eating with sinners and whom we would refer to as the am ha'aretz, the people of the land. And he's mixing all of those groups together. His basic response, Ken Bailey argues, is that Jesus says this, you accuse me of eating with sinners, you are absolutely right. That is precisely what I do. But as a matter of fact, I not only sit down and eat with sinners, I rush down the road, shower them with kisses, drag them in, that I might eat with them. It is much worse than you, much more worse than you imagined, right? And over and over and over again in this story, we find out that the party is not for the lost. It's for the finder. You don't throw a party for a sheep. You don't throw a party for a coin. The father is not throwing the party for his sons. He's throwing it for himself. The party is always for the finder. It's always because this is, this is the finder's day. This is what's happening here is this beautiful, amazing experience. And what Jesus does in this parable is so fantastic because you know what? A parable is not a delivery system for an idea. It's a house in which the listener is invited to dwell. And he is inviting all who are within his earshot to come and dwell in this world that he is creating around this table. Jesus welcomes all to the table. Every week when we open the Lord's table for communion. We always say all are welcome here because you know what? It's not our table. It's not our blood. It's not our body. All are welcome at this table. And it's because of passages like this in the gospel that push us constantly to say, we truly believe all are welcome. And I'm just going to let you know that that is really messy, difficult, and uncomfortable. We don't like people to mess up our table, right? It's messy. Have you ever been making something? Like I was baking this last week and then my, my nephew and my daughter wanted to help. And I was like, uh, because it's going to be messy and it's not going to be fun. It's not going to taste the way I want. And I'm working there like so excited to help. I'm like, okay, you know, and I'm like trying to like sneak behind them and fix it. It's hard to welcome everyone at the table, but it's the Jesus thing to do. And guess what? The good news is that he loves us. That Jesus loves us and conditions don't apply, right? Jesus loves us and welcomes us as we are and not as we should be because no one is as they should be. Not one of us is there. And the good news that I find in this, the Jesus culture that continues to push me and compel me and anchor me in this story is that in Jesus, there's no cancel culture. Isn't that amazingly good news? 
right? I mean, it's one person makes one mistake and everyone's like, that's it. And they get fired or they get trolled on social media and they lose their jobs and everything's hard. And we don't ever have compassion for that moment of like, they're just not yet as they should be like me. Give me five minutes, right? And, and in Jesus, there's no, there's no cancel culture. All are welcome at this table. So whether rich or poor or whether Googlers or Yahooers or Apples or Microsoft or dancers or monster truckers or analog or book or like, you know, all the, or yeah, you know, red, blue, all the in between, no matter who we are, what we believe, where we're from, what our orientation is, everyone is welcome at this table. And I've been seeing this meme a lot, like when you have more than you need, build a bigger table, not a higher fence. And that's beautiful and wonderful and soft and director to the border crisis. And I'm just like, you know, I think Jesus like, just build a bigger table. I don't think he's like, if you have more than you need, then be generous. It's just build a bigger table. Because everyone is welcome at the table. And this push of Jesus continues to compel me. That all are welcome. And he constantly is just asking me, do you want to come to the party? And I understand that this is hard work. And I know that as Sparkers, we have made decisions. And as leaders at Spark, we have made decisions where we have really tried to build a bigger table and pull up more chairs, as many chairs, as many people want to come. In fact, when we were starting Spark, I kept saying, I just want to build a church where Jesus has a seat at the table here in Silicon Valley. I just want the ethics of Jesus to have a seat at the table here. And in all of that, as we've welcomed, others have started to feel left out. Maybe we welcome somebody for whom it didn't fit with theology or, or maybe they didn't feel like a female pastor was appropriate or whatever it might be. They're welcome too. Everyone's welcome. The people that agree with me, the people think that I'm doing a great job, the people think I'm doing a terrible job and they don't agree with me at all. All are welcome at this table. All are welcome. And in our lives, whether we're at work or we're at school or we're at church or in our family, the push is always going to be to invite everyone to the table. Not everyone's going to want to come. It's choose your own adventure book. But everyone is welcome. And we don't get to be the gatekeepers of who comes or who isn't. Because Jesus didn't tell anybody not to come. He invited everyone from the religious leaders of the day to the people who are most marginalized. I think it's why Jesus chose to build his entire community around a meal. Because of the intimacy that happens whenever we say, do this in remembrance of me. When we invite everyone to this table, when we bring everyone here, we are not only taking the blood and the body of Christ symbolically through the grape juice or wine and the cracker, right? We are doing it in remembrance of what he taught us. That all are welcome at this table. So come to the table and come join the party. Celebrate because the finder has found us and brought the lost home. All of us have been brought home. And he's invited each one of us to the table. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you.
do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. Come, anyone who is hungry, anyone who is thirsty, come to the table. For all of you sparkers who are here today, may you believe and trust in the truth of God's radical welcome, of God's radical acceptance, of Jesus' radical love. May we not simply just know or read it in a story, but may we experience it fully and truly. And may we live out of that pure, unadulterated, unconditional love and acceptance. And may it continue to transform us and the world around us. In his name, amen.